Welcome, welcome, Flight Two Friday podcast listeners. Kenny, what's going on, dude? Nothing much, Sam. How are you? I'm good, man. Hey, uh, it's been a while since we got to do some what we call AHARS fireside chats out here in Astoria. Um, first time for you to be out here in a while, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I came through here as a student way back when, so it's good to get out here and, and see it firsthand. Yeah. How's the weather been? Great. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, except my flight got into Portland at like 10, so I was driving over at midnight. Ugh. That, that drive one on dark one you wrote on pouring rain the whole time in my uh my spark it's got a little <laughs> nine inch wheels on that rental i know how you feel on that one yeah it's fun to have the actual sun out today in the story i feel like it's just always garbage weather here um well i don't want to beat around the bush we have a phenomenal guest today our uh 26th ancient albatross uh, current d13 commander uh rear Admiral Bobulus. uh so with that uh we'll get started <laughs> Bliss. It's uh, good to see you, sir. How are you? Good. I'm glad to be seen, and it's uh, good to be here. Good to see you again, Kenny. <laughs> yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, you and I were uh, stationed together in Brinken back. Uh, yeah. When, when, when was that? That was. See, uh, I was there from 2008 to 2011. Yep. I think that was your first tour, if I remember yes, right. Yes, sir. Young. Young. Lieutenant King. <laughs> Look at you now. <laughs> yeah. Actually. Uh, we were talking uh, last night, but my I think one of our first interactions, I, I show up to Brinken. I'm a, yeah, brand brand new lieutenant, and I get put in charge of security and the, the housing. And sure enough, there was a some physical security inspection from D7, and I'm working on this, working on, I don't know what it was, some, some sort of policy for the unit that hadn't been updated in nine years, you know. And I'm, I'm working there. I'm the only one in the whole office. It's about 4.30, 5 o'clock p.m. And sure enough, in, in comes uh, Skipper. And he's like, hey, Kenny, what you working on there? Uh, sir, we got a big inspection tomorrow. And, you know, there's some things that probably aren't going to go so well. I, I'm trying to get this updated. And you kind of look and pause and give me that, the Captain Boobless look and say, yeah, that, that's tomorrow morning? <laughs> like, yes, sir. And he's like, yeah, anything you do between now and 8 a.m. is not going to make a big difference. So go grab your lobster gear. We're going lobster diving. And so what do you do when the boss says you go lobster diving? You, you go, go lobster diving. You go lobster so. diving. Yeah. Yeah. So if that was 1630 or so, that was a night trip, too, I would imagine, over oh, the reef. Good. Yes, sir. That's uh, Did a lot, of, a lot of diving, a lot of lobstering, a lot of bugging out there. I don't know what it is, but there's something just almost primal about entering the water and hunting for your own food. Yeah, I agree. Great spot to do it too. Nice warm water there, right? Yeah, something about, you know, seeing some snapper along the reef and for an hour and a half, you're hunting this one snapper. Like I know he's in that hole and you're making, you know, dives down to 40, 40 feet. How long do you think your breath hold was back back then in your prime? Oh, I I don't know. It seemed a lot shorter than I'm sure it, uh, it was or longer than it was, but... I probably got to about two fifteen. I mean, two minutes, two fifteen. Oh, I'd which, say easily. Yeah, because I remember you would go down, and I'd watch you go into a hole, and I'd start to get nervous as I'm like watching from the surface of like he's got to come out sometime. <laughs> At what point do I go down and look for him? Uh, but yeah, uh, I, I remember you had you had one big snapper that I specifically remember twenty plus pounds probably. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I'd uh, whip out my phone and show it to you right now. In fact, uh, that's one of those prizes that I still have in there. But yeah, yeah, that was good. Good times, yes, sir. That's awesome. How does it? Um, how's it feel to be the ancient one, uh, the most senior aviator that we have? All right, I haven't cracked this yet, but uh, I'm going to work on the aviation association. So, the ancient one. You know, I, I still don't think of myself as ancient, you know, in, in mind until I look in the mirror, or, you know, see that plate glass window as I walk by and it's like, who's this old freaking old? <laughs> but uh, I really enjoy the opportunity, the engagement. You know, I just was out here at AHARS and talked with the folks just a couple minutes ago and talked about your, your aggressive and safe training and how it saved lives. And I really wish I had the opportunity to participate in that course uh, mm -hmm. myself. But just being back around aviation, getting to go to CO's conferences, um, 21's roost was going to be in Port Angeles and in person. And then, of course, with 
the Omicron and whatnot, we had to go back to virtual. That was a little disappointing. But yes, sir. Just engagement with the Coast Guard Aviation Association. Hey, if you're not, if you're an aviator, Coast Guard aviator, mm-hmm. and you haven't checked out the Coast Guard Aviation Association, you got to do it. It's, yeah. uh, you know, it, it probably doesn't seem too important earlier in your career, but uh, the the longer in the tooth you get, the more ancient you get, the mm-hmm. more important it becomes. And it's just, it's really neat to have connections with with folks, uh, kindred spirits, you know, folks who have served in aviation industry and aviation business and really Coast Guard aviation. And mm-hmm. uh, we, again, we just have that kindred spirit. It's pretty cool. Um, so I hadn't broke, broke broached this before, but ancient albatross, you know, to me, the albatross was that thing that hung over a boat, you know, and kind of foreshadowed gloom and doom. And mm-hmm. anyway, um, so as I embraced the, uh, the position took it over from Admiral Ray last April. Uh, what a great guy too! You yes, know, big sir. shoes to fill, I tell you. Yes, big sir. shoes deep. to fill. Yeah, deep and wide. Anyway, um, <clears throat> I was wrestling with that name, and I was thinking, ancient albatross, ancient albatross, and there's got to be something a little, a little more distinguished, you know, mm-hmm. something exciting. So I was thinking, man, maybe the the senior aviator, you know, the uh, a supreme pilot. I don't know. Who's that, supreme pilot? Yeah. It's then like I that. then I felt a little. Uh, I don't know. Maybe self promoting. Yep. But the Brits, you know, they have like sea lords and air lords, and then it just came together. The ancient air lord. Ancient mm-hmm. air lord. And you're still AA. Yep. And you're still ancient Al. Ancient air lord. lord. So. Don't, don't let it out too quick, but okay. I'm going to run that by the uh, Aviation Association and see if my uh, compadres will buy off on that. I think that rolls a little bit better with the younger folks. Ancient, Ancient Air Lord. Lord. Ancient uh, Air Lord. I'm on board. Okay, um, there we go. Might have set it right here. Absolutely. Take advantage of every opportunity. I will uh, I'll toast to that. Yeah, speaking of that, I see you got a beer in front of you, sir. We like to kind of highlight uh, what we're drinking out here. What do you got uh, over there? Well, this is the Fort George Sunrise uh, OPA which uh, it's one of my favorites. Partly, I think anything that's above a 5.0 alcohol content mm-hmm. is one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Look, I just usually roll for that, you know? Yeah. Kenny, I, what was your level? I mean, you say it often. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I'm normally like a 6%. Otherwise, what's the point of even drinking the beer, you know? Yep. But, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm going to crack mine. Sunrise uh, Oatmeal Pale Ale. Um, you know, it's a good beer 5.2 looking forward to it what do you got kenny you got something in front of you yeah i got uh, another fort george uh, ipa the optimist uh i'm not going to crack mine quite yet i'm not sure the system can handle more beers okay. at, at the moment but mm-hmm. right we'll that uh i mean we kind of jumped right into it sir you're serving uh, now as the district 13 commander can you give our listeners just a little bit of background of your aviation career uh, that got you up to this point wow wow just to kind of cage us Aviation career, how how far back do you go? I will tell you, let me start at the very beginning. And in my office, I keep a photo, and I'll explain it here in a moment, but I'm a second-generation Coast Guard guy. My father was uh, listed, went up through the ranks, spent uh, 30 years in the Coast Guard. Chiefs, mm-hmm. warrant, and uh, warrant a lieutenant, retired as no four mostly in the naval engineering world. So he was underway quite a bit and all, mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe 16, 18 years of sea time. Wow. Didn't quite make Master Cutterman, but uh, close. And then I kind of joined the Coast Guard after a couple years, uh, worked for a year, went to college for a year, and then went through the academy. Um, I had two experiences uh, that really drove me to aviation. For some reason, I was just interested as a young, young kid. I, I think if I were being absolutely truthful, I was looking to have as much excitement in a career as possible mm-hmm. and do as little work as possible <laughs> and make as much money as possible. Yeah. And commercial aviation, you know, seemed yeah. like oh, this yeah. way back when, right? Definitely. Maybe not, not, not so much now, but, uh, so that was in my mind. And then going through the Academy, I can remember specifically, there was a, uh, event on a cutter that I would think it was a Coast Guard cutter bib or something like that. So mm-hmm. it's one of those where, um, for the folks who went through the academy and whatnot, you know, you spend five weeks on a ship or something like that. Mm. So somebody got hurt and this H3 comes out and they're hoisting this member off the boat. And I'm looking at that and I said, I, I love the water. I love, uh, I love ships and all that. But we were on that boat for two weeks and crackers taste like diesel fuel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we had three more weeks of this stuff. You know, I'm 
my stomach settled by then. And I'm looking at that guy and I'm thinking, you know, those guys in that aircraft are going to go home and sleep in their own bed. Tonight. Oh yes, sir. So that was, <laughs> that was the seating moment. And then the picture that I have is uh, the buoy tender, which was the conifer, which was my first assignment. And there's mm -hmm. a 65 flying over and it's the old uh, color scheme, red and white. Oh yes, 65s. Mm -hmm. And you know, I said, grew up in the Baywatch time, you know, and oh, yeah. Top Gun. <laughs> and um, anyway, so all those things kind of aligned and, um, I applied for flight school right out of, uh, my first tour and, uh, and got in and, and 65 is where I wanted to go primarily because I, I really like the search and rescue. I like the, mm. the closeness of, uh, of that airframe and the crew and, uh, and then just a practical guy, you know, not only did I want to sleep in my own bed and that thing lands every, every two and a half to three hours for sure. Oh, yes, sir. Uh, but they deployed, that was cool. And they had the most uh, assignment opportunities. Mm. Anyway, so that's how I got in. That's great. Fast forward, first tour in New Orleans, uh, great opportunities. A lot of SAR there, sir. Oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, exciting stuff. And not to you know make light or bring enjoyment from adversity, but you know, rigs on fire with people jumping in the water and uh, overturned boats and uh, fishermen that are uh, getting banged up and... Uh, we even got a uh, jet pilot one time that ejected out of his aircraft. First time, you know, swimmers do that parachute and disentanglement, right? Yes, well, uh, 22 years of flying, uh, only had that opportunity once, and it was in my first tour. But we we picked some guy out, you know, and, and they weaved him out of his uh, his parachute there wow. in the water and, and took him into the uh, hospital. Actually, I met my wife there in New Orleans. She's an occupational therapist, and it was interesting because – we dropped the guy off at the uh, hospital, elevated pad, and uh, and then about two weeks later, my wife was actually treating the guy. So they were chatting no over way. this, and it's like, oh, really? I think my, my <laughs> wasn't wasn't my wife at the time. She was my fiance, but yeah, my boyfriend I think uh, picked you up. It's <laughs> That's cool. cool, sir. Wow. That's awesome. Anyway, so you want the rest of it too? Yeah, you give, give us the laydown at least for the aviation portion, sir. Yeah. Absolutely. So New Orleans was cool. Um, I. Uh, I really enjoyed that again, besides having just a, a great town, uh, applied for and got selected for student engineering there mm -hmm. and thought life was going to be great. I'm going to get married, uh, spend the next 18 months in a place where I knew the AOR, you know, qualified AC, work on my student syllabus, mm -hmm. owned a house, boat, dog. And, uh, again, figured the next 18 months were cream. Mm-hmm. Two months later, I found myself in North Bend, Oregon. I got, <laughs> I got married, and they had an opportunity for uh, orders to get out to North Bend, and I went out there as the assistant EO and did my student at the same time. They needed a, a fill there. So mm. what went from, you know, a comfort to was Great learning change. a new job, you know, a fairly big job, new operating area with mountains and the weather and all that you have out here, mm -hmm. Um and, uh, and figuring out how to be married. My goodness, that was a job in and of itself. Yes, sir. Anyway, North Bend was really, really cool. I enjoyed that. Uh, cut my teeth in the engineering community and uh, working with our, with our mechs and uh, the enlisted air crew and the swimmers and all was just really, really rewarding. And mm -hmm. for me, again, with my kind of father's background, I just uh, gravitate to the, the fixer flyers of the, uh, of the, uh, the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, really wanted to do the O four EO job, mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, that was kind of where my heart and spirit was. And then, uh, there's opportunity for grad school. I threw my name in the hat and, and, uh, didn't really think about it. And lo and behold, I got selected. Mm -hmm. So I went off to grad school, uh, Purdue for structural engineering, aeronautical engineering. And somehow after, you know, eight, nine years of flying 65s and a brand new graduate degree, I was the most qualified guy to be the C-130 EO. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, I remember Doug Connor, who was kind of the, the aviation equivalent of the detailer at the time, deputy, little a, they called him, uh, called and, and uh, offered me the job. And, you know, good coasty. It's like, hey, thanks for grad school. I'll do whatever you guys need. Mm -hmm. Asked me what I knew about C-130s. I was like, well, they're, they're big and loud and they have four engines. That's <laughs> yeah. about it. Yeah. <laughs> I've flown in the back of one. Yep. And uh, anyway, so I did that. 
that was really, really cool to transition into the C-130 and yes, we hit ALC. Back then it was the Aircraft Repair and Supply Center okay. at a time when they were building product lines. Mm -hmm. Product line manager uh, or product line management and product line concepts were developed. And the C-130 was the last product, the last aircraft to go to the product line structure. So I was on the cutting edge of that mm -hmm. with Pat Dwyer and... Uh, Tom Wade and all, and it was uh, really neat. So then I fleeted up to the EO or uh, product line manager. Mm -hmm. So EO and then product line manager. And then uh, just quickly after that, I went to uh, Mobile mm -hmm. as the EO, transitioned to 60. So I was flying a big iron. That was pretty cool. Wow. Yeah. Three airframe transitions in a four year period, yeah. sir. Is that, or, <laughs> that's, that's quite mm, a bit. Yeah. Yeah. And then, course, we went through several different variants, uh, the Charlie and Delta and, mm -hmm. and uh, of the 65. And I actually had a chance to fly the Echo, excuse me, out at Port Angeles a little while back, Sir. which a shout out to Carl Reedlin and the 711 folks who, if I remember right, it's, are we on India version of yes, sir. 3710? Mm -hmm. So Carl, if you're listening, man, Thank you again. I told you I'm going to kiss you on the face sometime and say thank you, but change the 3710 to allow a prior rated aviator to operate the controls yes, sir. from takeoff to landing. That's Before awesome. I had to do grandpa flying, you know? That's right. Up at 500 feet. Okay, here you go, sir. You can touch the sticks. <laughs> you ever what done this before? Do? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, boy, I was grinning ear to ear when I uh, went to Port Angeles and I had a chance to pick up into a hover. It's oh, just like, yeah. it's like putting on an old pair of jeans, you know, it's like, Oh gosh, <laughs> this is awesome. This is it. Yes, you know? sir. Feel the little shuffle a little bit, translational yep. lift and away we go and mm -hmm. come back in and, and, uh, hit the, uh, transition point and come into a hover and it was pretty cool. Did the, uh, dash one numbers come back into your head while you were flying that? Sir? There were a few, I think it was, one, what is it? Uh, 125 and 50 or something. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. 75. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it was uh, it was good. That Echo, though, uh, kudos to the partnership between Seven Eleven, ALC, or ATC, and uh, and ALC. Uh, the human interface design on that. I mean, literally, I hadn't been in an aircraft in I don't know four years or something. And now my mind's going back to the first time I got into Echo at ALC with mm -hmm. Jeremy Cordate, if I remember right. Mm -hmm. um, but I got in the aircraft, hadn't been looking at a cockpit in several years. And literally within 15 minutes, the different colors and the displays that you have up there, uh, it was talking to me, you mm -hmm. know, just looking at it for a couple minutes, like, okay, there's a, a VSI, altitude airspeed, you know, there's my heading indicator bugs. It, it was it was pretty spectacular. Mm -hmm. And the aircraft is stable. My gosh, it was uh, really, really good improvements. Now we just got to keep those gearboxes coming. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> need more of those. Yes, sir. Uh, I haven't jumped into the Echo yet. I'm still a, a dirty D pilot, and it's hard mm. to get away from those steam gauges. They're just they're comforting to me. Yeah, I was worried about it um, tran transitioning over to the Echo, but it it was it was yeah. so, it was very user friendly, and it it just it was very intuitive. You know, I was a little concerned too because I I initially flew the Alpha, mm -hmm. so I mean I've been flying the 65 from when we had you know cast turbine blades that were blowing up and. Literally every flight, we'd come in and do a visual inspection of the turbine blades. And the, uh, so I've seen it through that whole lifespan. And New Orleans, I think, was the first 65 operational unit back in 86, maybe, or so, 85, oh, I think. I um, but we had the old triple tax and all that. And I, I just remember sitting over Lake Pontchartrain trying to do rescue swimmer work. And you're just, you know, managing one chiclet of... MGT, you know, and mm -hmm. okay, I'm, I'm in the zone for 30 minutes. I got to, I got to transition and, you know, cool the engines down or whichever. And then, uh, back to FLIs and you're just looking at, you know, the first limit indicator and then mm -hmm. back to the echo, but it, uh, it, it, it all seems to work out. Yeah, it really does. Mm -hmm. yeah. What'd you say that you miss about flying the most? way my wife looks at me when I come back. <laughs> I always have a big smile after flying. No, yeah. I, uh, what do I miss most? Well, I mean, there's just, there's just a thrill with flying when you're operating a machine. And, and I love flying fixed wing as well. Mm -hmm. You know, it's cool to get in a big aircraft that's robust and the power of a C-130. I mean, that thing generates its own lift and it blows wind over its wings. And it is a, it's a, 
massive and powerful machine and you can go places Mm -hmm. and there's nothing better than flying and smelling some, you know, brownies bacon in the back and (laughs) somebody comes up and you say coffee on the left and (laughs) hold your hand up and there's a coffee. (laughs) It's awesome. But, uh, what I like most is really, you know, aside from the operational stuff is, is just so rewarding when you get a chance to do something meaningful. And I mean, you do a search and rescue case and you go out and you, you snatch someone literally from the, the throes of death, the mm-hmm. teeth of, of death, and you bring them home to their family or loved ones, or you just get that sense that you made in your crew made an impact in somebody's life. Mm-hmm. And who knows what the impact or the end result or, uh, is all going to be, but it's just so rewarding. But the flying, I like the freedom. You know, I like the mm-hmm. multidimensional access, the view, the visibility. What I really like, and it's probably look into my own personality, um, how weird as it may be, is I like the immediate control and feedback. You know, it's like you, you pick up into a hover with a helicopter, you can fly it sideways and backwards, and, um, you know, you can bank the, uh, move the controls and bank the aircraft, and it responds. You know, there's no bureaucratic delay, to the, mm-hmm. and and it's uh, it's just freeing. Yeah, yes, sir. yeah. That's so what like I like. You strapping on the helicopter, not strapping into it, kind of mentality, yeah. and and you're flying. It's your it. Superman suit, right? It's your Superman <laughs> it suit. is. Yes, sir. Clark Kent, man, you step in, you step out with your helicopter and crew, and that's, it's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, and the sixty-five, I got to say, I love. I love all. You know, Admiral Ray would say, "Came a flag officer, he loved all God's children." Right? Yeah. Well, ancient albatross, I love all God's aviators and all God's aircraft, but. The 65 was probably the most rewarding to me. And there's a couple reasons. One is I just got to take off and land. So I got to fly the 60 yesterday, thanks to Chris Halzer and uh, probably Andy Eriks up in yes, 7-Eleven. We've mm-hmm. given a left seat waiver, so I was able to operate the controls, you know, once we got uh, away mm-hmm. from the ground and all. But uh, getting your hands around the big iron again is pretty exciting. But the 65, you know, I, I did test flights and you go out single pilot, just you and a Mac or something. And uh, that was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. I really, really enjoyed uh, the, the tight crew concept. Uh, some of the cases down in North New Orleans where you'd find a boat and you maneuver just right, you know, a 16 foot aluminum boat and you, you could get the rotor wash on the boat and push it up into the marsh. You know, you do that with a 60, man. You're going you're gonna to put people in the water and it's going it to right flip over the place. But you could, you could just do things with that, that niche aircraft that you, can't do with other mm-hmm. things. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. So I don't know if you know this, but I credit you for teaching me how to do tail rotors in the 65. And, uh, I remember once again, you know, first pilot at, uh, Brinken and me and Sean Jehu went out for a flight and he gave me a hard stuck, right. And I go to land it, I get the wheels on the deck and kind of get that panic and you, you throw the collective down and sure enough, you build up that yaw to the right and you start leaning left on that left main and you just start to feel like you're breaking and, um, Definitely scared the crap out of myself and Sean, I'm sure. Um, and I was like, all right, I, I don't think I need any more of those. He's like, no, come on, we, we can do a couple more of those. And I was like, oh, uh, all right, begrudgingly agreed to it. And luckily we had time for like one more um, and we were, we were out of gas. And then the next flight was with you. And you were like, Kenny, what, what would you like to work on today? And I said, well, kind of struggling with tail rotors. And you're like, that's great. You know what we're going to do today? And we did 2.3 hours of tail rotors on runway eight. We never left the pattern. Um, but you were the one that taught me the, the nose wheel, leaving the nose wheel off and just really getting the, the mains down and then controlling the yaw as you slow down the, on the runway. Um, but yeah, that was, there was at one point during that flight where you're like, let me show you some things. And, uh, that's always a scary thing to hear, isn't it? <laughs> no. From the CEO. Right? Hey, watch this. Watch hey, this. hold my beer. Uh, but uh, yeah, I remember at one point being like, hey, sir, like I am not a good safety pilot for you right now because I don't know what you're doing. And uh, there was one who's like, all right, I'm going to show you a stuck left. And we come in and you're like, yeah, I don't think we're going to be able to get this, you know, at the 60 knot and touchdown. You're like, no, watch this. We'll come in. I'm just going to totally dump the collective. We'll take all the aerodynamics off the aircraft and we'll just grease it on. And sure enough, we did. And I was like, yeah, I have, I have no idea what you're, what you're yeah. doing, but, uh, yeah, thank you for your, uh, mentorship on tail rotors. Cause I feel like I've, um, that's one of those things where I'll go out now and mm-hmm. say, let's go do some tail rotors today. Yeah. Well, good. Thank you. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Glad that I, I passed pass something on. positive on. Yeah. yeah and you yeah. pass on to him and Kenny was my instructor. So I've got that same <laughs> feedback for Kenny too. It's, it's continuous that pass on of, of knowledge from IP to, 
to student? Well, I'll tell you, I was a frustrated engineer in that, or pilot in that uh, North Bend was my second tour. Mm -hmm. And I'll, uh, we'll probably talk more about it, but let me finish up with the rest of my flying stuff and then I'll come sure. back to this. So I, I did North or uh, ATC Mobile as an EO and then actually left early for a needs of the service to Corpus as the logistics officer. So as mm -hmm. the first inbound logistics officer after they sec sectorized from, excuse me, group to uh, group air station to sectors. Yes, sir. So logistics, air station XO and all. And, uh, and then I went to Barankin as CEO after that. So that's where Kenny and I cross paths. But mm -hmm. in North Bend, I was a little frustrated in that uh, I really value, so you asked me what I liked about flying too. The other mm -hmm. thing is, is you could continually hone your craft. And I really liked knowing the systems and knowing the flight management systems, mm -hmm. uh, being a master of the craft, and then being able to control the aircraft and understand the aerodynamics and the feel of it and all. And I'm not saying that I'm like, you know, a super student. It was more, if you're going to fly, man, you want to, you want to fly it and make it mm -hmm. work and get good at it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I always tried to challenge myself, whether it was with tail rotors, autos, I, I tell you, I probably, what do we have, seven autos annually or semi-annual or something, whatever the requirement was. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was a guy who did like 25, 30 autos. It was, <laughs> I came back from Newport, you know, you, you knew when I was coming back, ended up with two autos and a tail rotor or two and, mm -hmm. and a heavy aircraft versus light aircraft with tail rotors, totally different uh, feel and power management. Um, did a lot of single engine. I just, I just liked doing the more challenging maneuvers and knowing that I could control that aircraft. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to be an IP and I never had that opportunity, which is something I kind of regret in my, my career. But mm -hmm. uh, I can't say that it was, uh, it was bad. Um, at the time I'd, again, student engineer, finished my engineering syllabus and there was opportunity for folks to uh, become IPs or whichever. And, uh, and the command there elected to give it to folks who uh, it would benefit them, you know, career-wise more. Mm -hmm. And uh, I couldn't argue that. And then, but the, <laughs> the difficult comment was, well, you're doing all the training anyway and you're doing what we want. And, oh, yeah. and it's like, well, well, yeah, so give me the designation, <laughs> yeah. you know? I wanted, I want, you know, I'm thinking about the future too. Anyway, um, we do a lot of those tail rotors. Joe Kimball and I, he, he probably shared a similar story one time with me. And I, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad yeah. I could could do that. And, uh, I like how you mentioned, sir, that, um, you know, you would always fill the end of that flight with a couple autos or tail rotors. And I mean, we've talked about it a lot with, especially with the reduction in flight hours in the 65, um, with our parts, uh, issues. Um, how do you optimize, you know, those minimal flight hours that you get, right? So, um, filling that time with as many different scenarios as you can, can do. And, and those tail rotors in our case, no, no uh, autos at this point, but yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that's really important for our young aviators to, to remember to do, especially as they go out in those RT ones that they've done a million times. Yeah. It's kind of neat. Yes, sir. Um, so here's a story for you. I'll tell you this. So that um, <clears throat> North Bend story. It's interesting as we talk about this and I think about different tours, you know, different things come to mind and, makes me really appreciate where I am on the 35th floor of uh, Jackson Federal Building looking out at Puget Sound. I got a beautiful office, but uh, boy, I'd trade in a minute to get back in the cockpit, you know? Yes, sir. Um, so along those lines, training, you know, I'd, I'd pull an engine when we were going to North Bend, you know, you're heavy and you're literally, you know, 50 feet above the water, just managing power and, and, and not in a risky way, I would say, but in a, in a pressing way, you know, flying a heavier, what, what could happen in the aircraft? Well, mm -hmm. you could lose an engine on takeoff and you know, there's, there's trees around North Bend. There's uh, uh, there's challenges. Maybe you have to actually go single engine, build some airspeed up and follow the river, mm -hmm. uh, you know, to avoid hazards. And so we'd practice that. One of the things also that I practiced was quick starts. You know, it took a, it took you 15 minutes to get the aircraft off the ground mm -hmm. um, or longer. And so this is probably Bravo model, I guess, back then. And uh, one of the things we'd practice is, is just quick starts, you know, get out there and 
go through the checklist, and it's all memory checklist at the time, get the aircraft safely, mm-hmm. but start it as quick as you can get in the air. And if you get in the air before the gyro spooled up and your ADI wasn't quite running yet, you know, and your VFR and all that, that was, to me, that was kind of like, okay, we did you, it. you're there, you know, five minutes, boom, you're out. And uh, so I was with Matt Mormon and I would deploy up to North Newport quite a bit. So we were coming in and Matt Mormon was a co-pilot and uh, we're wearing the blue Mustangs at the time, you know, mm-hmm. not the dry suits. Give mm-hmm. you an idea how didn't have MVGs. Mm-hmm. Anyway, this is a daytime event. So we land at Newport. We're getting ready to refuel the aircraft and uh, gets into this whole AHARS thing and heavy surf. Uh, were you in there just a little bit ago when we were talking about the? Yes, sir. I mentioned the picking a guy up out of the surf and them tethering underneath the aircraft. Well, this is that case. So yes, sir. Uh, I'm inside taking a leak. Phone rings and they're like, "Hey, it's a guy in the surf." right down the street, you know, uh, 15 minutes or so. And uh, we need you guys to launch. So I, I like run out, I yell, it's like, stop the fuel, stop the fuel. I knew we were in the process of refueling. Yep. I was like, Matt, get in the right seat, get the aircraft going. And so he's out there running, I'm getting the information and we sure enough, uh, get into the aircraft, get in the air pretty quick. I don't, I don't remember if the ADI was spooled up yet or not, but, um, <laughs> We go along the water there. Unfortunately, we we you know we cut the fuel off enough that uh, we could we could hover right away. We didn't have to dump any fuel. We mm-hmm. got this guy that was triathlete in the surf and figured he was going to go surf or, or swimming. Got sucked out and was in some some pretty treacherous water, 30, 25, 30 foot waves or so. And um, yikes! So we deployed the swimmer and Matt Mormon in the right seat. I'm kind of coaching him from the left and. Um, it was his first first real SAR case, act first live hoist, wow. first real SAR case, and it was pretty dramatic. Yes, so sir. the swimmer goes out and grabs this guy, and waves come over, and you can see the swimmer tossing around and trying to free the cable from around his neck and all, and he's just with this res- wrestling this guy around, and then he gets the ready for pickup signal, and we pick him up, and as we're picking him up, and uh, this is all videotaped by somebody on a turnout or overlook, mm-hmm. Videotape, yeah. No, no yeah, like the ones are like over the shoulder, yeah. And quarter. Okay. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. This this had to be like ninety five, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ninety five or ninety six before Ahars even started, I guess. Yes, sir. And uh, anyway, so Brad Treblehorn was the the swimmer, and he's uh, so Brad. If you're listening out there, uh, good on you, and I hope your restaurant's going well. Um, anyway. Bear hugs this guy or gives it ready for pickup. We pick him up and this wave just comes through and just smacks him. And they literally the, the photo, the video you can see, they just emerge out of the wave, you know, water rushing off behind them, you know, twinkling in the sun. And Mm -hmm. it's just spectacular, but they're, they're swinging like a a pendulum underneath the aircraft. You can feel it pulling and all. And um, anyway, long story short, we get the guy inside and, and lo and behold, Brad's got this guy in a bear hug. He didn't even have a strop around the guy. The physical he grip. did the whole thing physical grip. Wow. And brought him into the cabin. And, and you know, my heart's pounding because we were probably 35, 50 foot hover. Yes, sir. And uh, boy, had I known that, I'd been a lot closer to the water. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but anyway, that was that was a great thing. So that's a good one. Yeah, I mean, we that ties into what we do now here out at Ahars because we teach physical grip relocations out of surf zones like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's so interesting to hear your story, sir, to know that, you know, you had to go out in a dark and stormy to do that rescue without having specific training, yeah, in, you know, yeah. to go do that. Um, and I, just what is your take on, on AHARS then as far as like a school to train us? Um, is good thing for the Coast Guard something we want to pursue for everybody? Uh, what are your thoughts on, on the training that gets done out this here? This is sir? the shameless marketing part, It's right? a real <laughs> shameless marketing part. Gotcha. <laughs> nice, Sam. Okay. Hey, I had to do it. <laughs> I think it's great. You know, what, what's the theme? Aggressive, safe training saves lives. Mm-hmm. It, it really does. I mean, it, not only does it save lives and allow us to save lives, it, it protects our, our resources, our you know, most important resource, our, our people, right? Mm-hmm. And our assets. And I think the more aggressively and safely we can train to the best standards that we can, the better off we're going to be. And you, you heard that as a theme. I mean, that's a, sometimes you have to spend two hours doing tail rotors, you know, and, mm-hmm. and once you do that, 
you get it. You get some muscle memory down. Mm-hmm. You understand things. You get. You develop an intuition to where you can sense something's going bad, and you don't have to get to the bad spot. Mm-hmm. Or it sneaks up on you. You can either anticipate it, mitigate it, or avoid it. And uh, and that's key. So I think that's one of the things that's here. I mean, mm-hmm. when you practice it, like like I said, I when I go back and critique that hoist that I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was way too high. I should have. I should have come much closer to the water just in case something happened. And, and you know, physical grip, dropping somebody in the water at fifty feet, you know, or relocated them and mm-hmm. tried again. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the benefit that you get from this this training and all. I'm working with the Canadians. I think is awesome. Uh, um, I was uh, envious of the course when it first developed, and. You know, even when we were out in Branking, Kenny, we had some big surf out there. Absolutely. And we spent some time. I don't, I don't know if you and I think you and I did in, yes, in probably some of those 15-foot waves putting swimmers around. And that was just ad hoc local unit training, mm-hmm. and partly because we couldn't get out here to ARs. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I think you've increased recently. Yes, sir. PJ and uh, uh, Johansson, is that right? Yes, sir. And, and uh, Chris Halls are in a team. You guys, I think you guys increased the throughput by like 25%. Yes, sir. For a very nominal cost increase. And mm-hmm. there's, there's other opportunities with Camp Rylea housing and all to uh, to even in, increase the output more. And the more of this type of training that we get, uh, and not just, well, I, I guess the urban SAR piece, and people know about that being blended in, which has just been somewhat recent in the last few years. Yes, sir. I mean, that that's vitally important. I was in... EO there in ATC Mobile and flying the big iron then. And I, I probably, I want to say four flights, two night flights, two day flights, equivalent of maybe 15, 20 hours and, mm-hmm. and hoisted 60, 70 people from rooftops, you know, at night NVGs with, uh, in an urban environment that we hadn't operated in before. And that was, mm-hmm. that was exciting. It's harrowing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I think the training is vitally important. Yes, sir. I'd like to see us continue it and increase. It's tough too, the firm and organization where you look at, you know, how do you measure the return on your investment of training time and all? But uh, I, I think we have a very good reputation and history of operating safely. Mm-hmm. We, we had some problems in the in the early '80s or early uh, 2000s. What 2000? Probably five to ten somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. We had some tragic events that went on. But we learned from them and moved on and uh, improved some of our assets, improved some of our policy and improved some of our training and tracking. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Anyway, probably laboring too much on that. No, not at all. So is the uh, ancient air lord, that, that's what we're calling it, ancient right? Ancient air lord. Yeah, yeah. As the ancient air lord. Sounds like it's going <laughs> to stick. I'm <laughs> ready. Uh, <laughs> does 7-Eleven or 41 have to give you a text real quick of like, hey, yeah, we're about to make this thing as the ancient albatross, sorry, air lord. Hey, we need your approval real quick, or does that not happen? You know, so I talked with Admiral Ray about this a little bit of what is the position and what are the roles? And here's the thing I was concerned about is we we enjoyed a lot of aviation representation and participation in senior leadership in the organization for a very long time. We went through modernization and... uh, Aviator DNA was popular for a while, and we modernized SFLC, and this whole product line structure became real valuable. I mean, we had big names like uh, Gromlick and, you know, Butt and Corn and mm-hmm. Courier and Ray, all these, all these just, you know, impressive Titans. aviation leaders who were there. And then, and then in the blink of an eye, we had a whole bunch leave, and there were literally two aviation flags. Now there's three, and we just got two more selected on this last board. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there was concern that we were going to lose some, uh, not, not, uh, importance or, or support, but I, I think, or relevance, but, but more that organizational knowledge and, and, uh, advocacy for things like sustaining aircraft and SLEPs and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So I asked Admiral Ray, what's this role about? And he, and he said, it's mostly ceremonial. And I think from his perspective, um, that's true because he was the vice commandant and 
the ancient albatross, ancient air lord. You know, so he <laughs> had both roles and the senior advocacy rolled together, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I'm looking, you know, as from D13 on the West Coast. Yeah, what do influence and what impact do I have? And we're, you know, we got some strong initiatives and I really appreciate Admiral Ray's leadership as he was uh, finishing up with, you know, laying the vision of perhaps one fixed wing asset, perhaps one rotary wing asset going to 120, whatever it is, uh, yes, 60 fleet, mm -hmm. which I think is, is important, mm -hmm. particularly as a 65 continues to get long in the tooth. And no one runs anything official by me. I will be asked my opinion on things occasionally. Mm -hmm. And then I try to assert my position and opinions and influence when possible. I, I will attend the aviation CO's uh, conference down at Mobile. Is at the end of April or March, excuse yes, me. Sir. The EO's conference, uh, aeronautical engineers conference. I'll try and attend those as well. I want to. I want to be as uh, involved as I can, mm -hmm. and I'm fortunate that Seven Eleven will sponsor some of my travel occasionally. Like we had the uh, National Helicopter Association down in San Diego, and and they flipped the tab for me to go down there and accept some awards on the Coast Guard's behalf and, mm -hmm. and represent Coast Guard aviation at large. So yes, that's kind of cool. I really like the. Like the position, yeah, and the you know the coat and the hat's pretty cool. <laughs> I almost feel a little goofy sometimes, yeah, but yeah. Uh, but it usually captures some attention. I think people appreciate. It. You'll have yeah. to let me know if they do. Yeah, but, I, I definitely think people do. Absolutely, especially when they're not expecting it, and then you come in with the uh, the full get out. It, it creates <laughs> at least a chuckle. It's yeah. awesome. I, I I mean, you safeguard our culture as like our aviation culture. You're the you're the top lead for us, and um, we certainly appreciate it as you speak for all of us as the ancient air lord. Um, <laughs> make sure I get that, that term right. Um, do you have any other favorite SAR cases that you, that you've done? I know you talked about that, uh, heavy seas one. Yeah. Um, you know, that was pretty cool because, uh, the video went the equivalent of going viral is what, you know, what we have nowadays. <laughs> so what does that mean? Well, it was picked up by like Dateline and, you know, on the news and mm -hmm. we got interviewed and it was, it was kind of cool. Um, but there's been quite a few others as I, I look back. But um, for some reason, as I'm here in the Pacific Northwest again, mm -hmm. uh, back in D13, I think maybe my memory's tracking more towards that. But here's one I can remember in uh, off of Gold Beach. And it was, it was kind of uh, exciting and somewhat uh, tragic. But the exciting part is, uh, so we get launched. It's fairly decent day mm -hmm. weather-wise. Um, I want to say it was the latter summer time for a couple of divers who were out in a boat and uh, wind, wind-driven waves picked up and uh, they were overdue mm -hmm. and believed that their boat was awash. And, and sure enough, it was. It was off a of gold beach. So uh, we find some debris and, and had a reported position where they were. So was, we thought we were in the right area. Mm -hmm. And we're doing our search pattern. And it's, you know, there's some cliffs there and all. So, you know, it's one of those where you're, you're watching, it's daytime, so we didn't have to worry about, you know, monitoring radar and having uh, uh, that kind of safety stuff going on, but it was getting towards dusk. And um, long story longer, we're doing our search. And, and I look out and lo and behold, it's like, there he is, there he mm -hmm. is. Like, you see this diver, and he had a green tank on. I'll never forget it. I mean, I can see him swimming, you know, his arms uh, passing one in front of the other and breaking the water. And the orange, the, uh, did I say orange? It was green. It was kind of a uh, lime, you know, bright green, diving mm -hmm. green colored air tank. Um, and it was moving back and forth, you know, and you could see his feet cook. So he was splashing. It's like, holy, there he is, there he is, mark, mark, mark. You know, and we marked the spot and came back around. Well, what does he do, right? He sees the aircraft. He rolls over, right, and oh, looks up. no. And then all you see is goggles, you know, and his hands out of the way. He's not splashing anymore. And and heart sank. You know, we saw this guy, and now we're searching around. It's like, where'd he him. go? I can't find him anymore. And we're, we're near panicked trying to find this guy. We find him. Mm -hmm. We see him. Now, let me put this in context. We didn't always have rescue swimmers. You guys know that, right? Yes, sir. Uh, so <laughs> we had 
started the rescue swimmer program, I want to say back in the late eighties, if I remember right, I think in new Orleans, we were, we were kind of institutionalizing them in all mid to eighties. Uh, so this is early nineties, 94, 95 timeframe. And we had, I don't remember the case, Louis may've been the swimmer and we had a couple cases where we left swimmers mm-hmm. overnight and, and there was concern about indiscriminately or too quickly deploying or mm-hmm. employing the swimmers and, and putting them at risk. So the, the, the approach at the time, the direction was be more conservative in your use mm-hmm. of the swimmer. Mm-hmm. So we see this guy, we're watching him, right? We got a swimmer in the back, but the guy's there, he's waving to us, you know, healthy. So we put the basket down. It's like, okay, we're going to do a basket recovery. Mm-hmm. Pay the basket out. Well, the diver can't get in can't the basket, in. right? Because he's got all his dive gear and stuff. And, yes, you know, sir. they're not going to get rid of their $1,000 worth of dive gear and all. And you, <laughs> yeah. So now we're stuck. It's like, well, dude can't get in the basket. Mm-hmm. We're here. We got uh, the basket out. We got it paid out. So I'm actually hovering off of it as, as a reference. And, it's, and you're watching this. It's like, man, we're stuck. Okay, we got to deploy the swimmer. Well, now you're stuck in this challenge of, well, you can't deploy the swimmer when you got a basket and a cable out the back, right? Right. So now you got to do this kind of calculated risk analysis. And this is important too. You know, I think I think we're at a point where as I observe some of the operations, there's a little bit of risk aversion in some folks. And I don't know if it's coming from uh, the prolific use of uh, video and information and technology mm-hmm. and the critique or criticism that can come with that level of visibility, or if it's society at large, just, you know, pointing out fault or whatever, but Hey, we are in, we're in a risk management business. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? We're anyway, that's a whole nother topic. Maybe I'll get into that a little bit back to the case. So here's this guy, right? Saving this dude can't get in the basket. So, uh, come out and it's like, okay, get ready for the swimmer, you know, rescue check part two for, free fall deployment of the swimmer yeah, and uh, thinking through it, like, okay, is this going to be an ass chewing, you know, am I going to mm-hmm. lose, lose some quals or whatever, but it's like, it comes down to that. Yes, sir. It's not much thought, you know, Yeah. paid out slack, put the basket out front, dropped down to about 10, 15 feet, deployed the swimmer, free fall. He goes over, sheds the guy's gear, gets him in the basket. We recover him. We save a life. That's the good part. The tragic part was he had a buddy who was out there and we spent the next uh, half an hour looking for his buddy. Couldn't find him. Uh, we dropped him off. Rob um, for him and his family and then spent the the rest of the bag in the dark uh, searching for the guy and never, never found his friend. But uh, anyway. Yeah. That's a, that's yeah. a great case. I, I mean, we've, heard stories uh, on this podcast specifically of people um, adjusting their on-scene decision, you know, a litter augmented double pickup lap who, you know, which is something that uh, the swimmer stand team has been testing, but sometimes you don't have the opportunity gas wise, especially in a 65 to do two separate hoists and a swimmer hook into the, into the talon to hook your talon and, and come up with the litter or the basket, whatever that might be. So it's good to see that that culture still exists um, as we continue you know, I mentioned uh, the early or mid 2000s when we had some mishaps and all, and then we had the, uh, what is it, Aviation Safety Assessment Action Plan, ASAP, mm-hmm. uh, headed by Admiral Courier. And thank you for his leadership and bless his heart, rest his soul. Yes, sir. Um, just a, a great mentor of mine and somebody I looked up to, a hero really. Um, but he did an article, I don't know if you guys have read it, probably, I would expect everybody's yes, probably sir. read it, probably yeah. goes through. <clears throat> ATC pretty regular about warranted risk. Mm-hmm. I couldn't express those thoughts more clearly and articulately than he did in his um, in his article. What was that? Uh, Navy Institute, I think, or something. Yes, like sir. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you haven't read that, for the folks who haven't, uh, get your hands on that and read it. It's uh, it's definitely worthwhile, and that's that's kind of a way that I that concept is kind of what I practice in life. You know, yeah. I mean, it, it, we. There, there, there's a yellow line or there's stripes down the highway for a reason, mm-hmm. you know, and it's to bring order and structure and policy to uh, normal operations. But I tell you, if a deer darts out in front of me or, you know, I see a kid in the road or whatever, I may have to cross that lane or cross that line and go into the other lane and depart mm-hmm. from standard policies or processes is warranted risk. 
and deviate so that I can manage the situation appropriately. And then afterwards, I get right back in my lane, mm -hmm. right? And that's just, that's the concept of managing that. Yes, I think sir. that works with personnel management and all too. Anyway, yeah. good stuff. Where do you see aviation going in the next, say, 5, 10, 20, 20 years? Well, I think we have the kind of vision laid out for the next 5, 10 years. And that's continuing to work our fixed wing fleet, you know, get some sensors um, on them. I think we got to look at that. Uh, you know, I, I had a personal hand in acquiring the C-27. Mm-hmm. I was in 41 when we were finishing up the acquisition for the 144 and, and again, getting the C-27. Um, arguably, maybe it would have been great if we got the C-27 early on and it stayed, the flight management system and all stayed consistent with the J model, the C-130J, but uh, we're not there. We're where we are now. Um, so I, I do see the fixed wing fleet continuing to look at that. Where was it going with that? I, I think maintaining three aircraft, three training systems, three logistics systems with two of those aircraft being kind of uh, uh, foreign origin, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. it, we set ourselves up for down the road, having some of the challenges we're facing with the 65 right now. And let me just say that 65 has been an awesome aircraft. I mean, we worked through some, some hard times. Um, again, uh, Bless their souls, Tom King and Boo Harner with uh, getting the re-engineering the, for the 65 and, and carrying that through. Uh, but it's been a great aircraft for us. I don't know how many people operate helicopters for 40 years, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it, it's good. I don't, I had a 1990 Mercedes. I love that car. And uh, <laughs> I got rid of it before I came out here. Every time I touch something on it, you know, something was breaking down, the pneumatic lines or whatever. Yep. 30 year old parts. Anyway, yeah. uh, the rotary wing, I see us, you know, the, the vision's clear again, where we're going to increase the size of the 60 fleet. I think we have some uh, congressional support and some um, support with funding for that. And I think as we invert the size of the fleet, that's going to ease some of the pressures on the 65. So I think it's going to increase the, the uh, readiness and reliability as we move into five, 10 years. Mm -hmm. uh, but we got to, we got to eventually, um, whether it's 10 years or 15 years, we've got to look at recapping our, our aviation fleets. Uh, I see C-130s being around for, you know, as long as we're going to be producing those things. Mm -hmm. They're just so tied into DOD and a robust support network. Uh, the rotary wing, I see us uh, tying into DOD also, I, I would think, and, and the future vertical lift holds some promise. But that's been holding promise since I was in 41 for the last 10 years, you know, 15 years. It's like, when's, when's future vertical lift coming? I think it's going to be here in the next couple, uh, five, 10 years, and, and we'll have some sound options. Um, I think UAVs and uh, autonomous, you know, unmanned aerial systems and all, uh, that's going to take off, and that's going to be important. And I think it's, it's, it's wise, but we're always going to have a need and a, and a, operational space for manned aircraft that go out where mm -hmm. people think and respond to things different than, than you can from a video camera or whatever. And just the capability of being able to hoist and all. Yes, sir. Anyway. I won't, I won't say no to a UAV doing a, uh, first light search. It's dark. You go out and <laughs> yeah, go, you go, go to search your box. And, and when yeah. you find something, let me know. Yeah. And I'll go and pick I'll go, them up. Exactly. Yeah. High <laughs> alert in my bed. Exactly. Um, yeah. Admiral, really enjoyed uh, talking to you and, and getting all these stories out of you. It's, it's awesome to talk to another aviator from that perspective. Um, a lot of our listeners uh, are always looking for advice, how to improve themselves. And we usually end our show uh, with that. So I don't know if you got a specific piece of advice for our young aviators out there or something that you've had along the way that somebody's taught you um, that, that's been meaningful for your career, sir. Wow. You know, I've, I've had so many people teach me or mentor me through example, I guess, so many different things. So I kind of observe folks and pick out traits or actions that I find productive, valuable, or they glean the responses that I would like. And, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's a Charlie Ray and the way he kind of just speaks casual and, and direct to people and personal. Um, there's quite a few pieces of advice, I would say. From the flying side and all, I would say, you know, continue to challenge yourself and just seek to improve and mm -hmm. do your best. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, we can all get by, 
And most of us, we, we run with an exceptional group of people. They're intelligent, motivated people, and it can be easy to fall into a comfort zone where we're all just kind of getting by. But I, and I, and I don't mean have a super competitive spirit with one another, but assess yourself and, you know, whether it's doing tail rotors, there was, I don't know what people thought about that, but I always wanted to do the best at those tail rotors that I could and experience. And I would challenge myself. And so I'd encourage you to continue to challenge yourself and in all elements, Um, your family life, your, your flying skills and those types of things. Awesome. Um, another one would be is know your priorities. You know, I, some folks I've been mentored. I mentor some folks and I always found it interesting when people would give me career advice, you know, you should do this, this, and I'm like, mm. really? Maybe you should ask me what I want to do before you give me advice, you know? Mm. Um, and I don't mean that in a smart way. I mean that in, um, if I'm not tracking for something uh, or if my actions, my actions need to be aligned with my priorities. So I would ask people, you know, what, what are your priorities in life? What do you want to, what's important to you? What do you want to do? And, um, you know, some people might want to chase money. I don't know. Well, that's probably the Coast Guard is not the place to be doing that, you know? (laughs) Yes, sir. But ensuring that you're, you understand your priorities in life and your actions are aligned with it. You know, you can't say that your family and your, your spouse is a priority and then go out hunting and drinking and staying out late. You know, you gotta, you gotta come home and you gotta be present and give attention. And that's how your actions align with priorities in your life. So uh, I think that's, that's probably the biggest thing. And then the final one I would say for, and this is just for me, um, my priorities in my life are faith, family, friends and Coast Guard. Mm -hmm. So I got some friends that most of my friends are associated with the Coast Guard, but I got some friends that, you know, if I had to go to work or I, or I needed something from the Coast Guard and I had a friend in, in crisis, I might put that friend above the Coast Guard, you know, Mm -hmm. so I can't, can't come into work today or whatever. But I feel fortunate that we have an organization with great core values that aligns with my faith and that I'm in a career that I can pursue stuff that I enjoy and support my family. Mm-hmm. And I've missed my share of birthdays and anniversaries, but I purposely put action to those priorities. So if I miss a birthday or an anniversary, my wife was just, uh, we, we missed her birthday recently, but um, I'll make it a point to come back and schedule some time and make it clear that, hey, this is this is that balance of, you know, the, the career or the job cost this piece, but you're a priority and I'm gonna invest here. Um, anyway. I guess awesome. that would be it. Yeah, I think that's really important to talk about. We talk about it a lot, you know, um, just amongst the shop at ATC about um, that word, that work-life balance and making sure that you, you know, yeah, I got to be the best pilot I can be, but I also got to take care of all, all the other things that are going on. And um, I yeah. can relate to all the things you said of it. It's, it's easy to get, just get by sometimes mm-hmm. um, and not put the attention into some of the areas that, mm-hmm. You, you ought to be, and personally, you know, like, hey, I'm, I'm falling short in some areas and it's good to have some internal reflection and it's good to have people surrounded um, with you that, that know you to say, hey, I don't think you're being the best that you can be right now. Yeah. You got to build in some accountability. That's great yeah. if you can mm-hmm. do that. Well, you got awesome. any other, uh, any other questions, Kenny? Sir, you got any other parting shots? Well, I d- you know, this is my first one of these. I'm going to listen to a couple. I'd heard that uh, some were pretty outstanding. So yeah, it'd be interesting to see how it lines up. But I enjoyed the opportunity and um, I really appreciated coming out here to AHARS and having a chance to kind of bond with the, the tribe again. And uh, good seeing you, Kenny, and seeing how you've progressed in your career. And um, it's It's rewarding for me personally to hear it's something I did made a positive difference in, in your professional uh, pursuits and you've passed that on to others. I mean, I, I think that's one of the really cool things about, one of the things that I value in our organization is not just doing the stuff, but the opportunity to to make a positive impact in other folks and mm-hmm. help them achieve their goals. And, and anyway, that's pretty cool. Yeah. 
I'll tell another quick uh, boobless story because I think it, <laughs> I remember right, being a, a co-pilot and standing duty with the, the 06 of the unit as a, as a brand new co-pilot. And I remember every time we got into the aircraft, I don't know if you remember saying this, but you would say, I'm going to make three procedural errors on this flight and it's your job to catch them. And at the time, looking back, I was like, well, that's kind of a chicken shit thing to do. Like, why is it my job to tell you you're messing up? Why don't you? And now that I'm an experienced aviator, I'm like, now I get it. I absolutely get it because that was the permission to tell the 06, hey, you're doing something wrong. And it, it broke down the barriers to say, well, yeah, we're about to crash, but I'm not going to say anything because it's the 06 of the unit and he's about to sign my OER and I'm worried about promotion and I'm worried about all these other things. So I, I appreciated uh, that. Maybe not as much at the time, but now I definitely do. You know, it's interesting. I, I appreciate that. And uh that probably grew out of something too, because I have where time when I was again, a senior officer and, and flying and simulated, you know, not reacting right or whatever. So we climbed out of a match or a catch and I just kind of bank and start turning, mm -hmm. turning and turning. And, you know, everybody's like, what, what the hell are you doing? You know, turning and no one says a thing, you know? And it's like, well, clearly, he knows what he's doing. I mean, he's been flying his aircraft longer than, you know, anyway. Uh, and you realize that people will give you this courtesy because of your rank position or whatever. And so that kind of grew out of that was uh, I wanted to challenge folks. And the other was, I'm going to screw up, you know, and I, I do want you to, uh, yeah. that's exactly what the intention was, is I yeah. wanted to empower you and challenge you and, Anyway, that's yeah, cool. it was great because that you know even like little things on the checklist you would say you know uh, check you're like oh that's officer and you're like oh okay I could tell like that's not you know probably what you're looking for but thank you thank you uh, um, but yeah yeah I, some things you can take a little too far Ken. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right uh, well Admiral once again thank you so much for uh, coming on it's been our pleasure having you out at yeah. uh, Ahars and uh, thanks again yeah good to talk to the ancient airlord sir. <laughs> My, my pleasure. <laughs> Thank you and uh, happy to be here.